Morning, everybody. I always hate to be the one to break up your guys' wonderful uh, socializing. These guys sound like you're having a great time. Sorry to ruin it for you. Um, Hey, my name's Sam. I'm one of the pastors here at South Valley, and we are so excited to launch a brand new series today. He is. We're going to talk more about it in a minute, of course, but uh, just want to let you know we have small group curriculum available for this today. So if you want the book that has the small group questions for every week, as well as space for notes and stuff like that, those are available for $4 in the lobby after service. You can also get it online as a PDF. Before we jump into the series, though, there's a couple things that are coming up that I I specifically wanted to let you guys know about, just so you know um, how important they are to us and so you don't miss them. One of them is called the Regeneration Forum. Pastor Isaac is on the leadership team of a nonprofit called The Regeneration Project. They produce a podcast and a variety of other things that are all kind of geared towards bringing apologetics and an understanding of the Christian faith to new generations. And one of the things that they do is a conference every year. And this one is happening on November 9th in Milpitas, California. It's cheap. It's 20 bucks, and that includes lunch. If you go go with a group, you can get even cheaper than that. And it's going to be incredible. This year, something really unique is happening there. The, the speakers are Josh McDowell, who many of you know because he came and spoke at our anniversary service just a couple of months ago, and his son, Sean McDowell, who is also a trained apologist and professor with a PhD. And they're, they're both going to be teaching on why we believe what we believe, but they're also going to be doing something where Sean is going to share about his experience walking away from the faith as a young man and what brought him back. And Josh, his father, is going to share about the experience of being the parent during those circumstances and how they handled it. And so I know for many of you in the room, that's something that either you have dealt with are dealing with currently, or, you know, unfortunately, it's likely that at some point in the future you will wrestle with this very thing. So I cannot recommend this highly enough. Please grab tickets. It's going to sell out. It sells out every year, and we'd love to see all of you there. The other thing that I am personally very excited about and I want to invite you into is our Heal to Heal running fundraiser that we do every year. I can see many faces of people who have participated in the past. The way it works is is really simple. We get a team together to participate in a half marathon. This year we're doing a half marathon or a 10K. You can choose which one you want to participate in. And we provide training materials, resources to get you ready for the race, whatever distance you choose to sign up for. And while you're training, You're also fundraising for our partners at International Justice Mission. The International Justice Mission is the foremost nonprofit organization that fights against human trafficking in the world. And we're really excited this year in particular because in the past, while we have supported the organization in a general way because we love what they do, fighting against modern slavery all over the world, this year, because of our consistent support with them, they reached out to us and asked us to partner with a particular field office in a particular country. And so going forward, we're gonna be partnered with their Dominican Republic field office, which is in the Caribbean. It's right next to Haiti, which makes it really uh, helpful and practical for us to go visit them. We'll be getting regular updates from this specific field office. We'll be able to send teams there. So you might be able to run in this race and then in the future go and actually meet the men and women who you're supporting as they fight against human trafficking. So incredible opportunity. They've been very successful in the past. Last year, we raised over $15,000. The year before that, we raised over $18,000. And all you have to do is just punish your body beyond belief. So um, (laughs) truly, I, I say this every year, but I really mean it. Absolutely anyone can do this, especially now that we have the 10K option. We have a training plan that starts next Monday that is designed for someone who has never run, who can't run, maybe not who's never run, that might be pushing it. But if you can't run even half a mile right now, if, if running's not something you do, you have zero experience, you are 
starting out walking, and by the time the training plan kicks into running mode in December, you'll be ready to run three miles. If you can already run three miles, training starts the first week of December. So please consider jumping in on this with us. Tracy Hill has been the person who has been in charge of this every year, and it's just been an awesome event. I'll be running the half marathon. I invite you guys to get involved with me. Also, last thing about this, it's, it's an incredible opportunity to tell your friends and family about the things that you are for as a Christian. A lot of the time, Christians in the modern world, we're kind of known for what we're against too frequently and not known enough by what we're for. And so for you to be able to tell friends and family, hey, support me, pledge a support, the donation. I'm running this race to support an organization that fights against human trafficking. And so you can share with your friends and family who aren't even a part of the church about what you're doing and raise money to, to help fight human trafficking. So as I've been saying, you can fight against the power of Christmas cookies and human trafficking at the same time. Make yourself run through the holiday season and, uh, and do this with us. So next week, next Sunday, we'll have an informational meeting after both services. Tracy and I will answer any questions you have and give you all the details. But don't be scared. You can absolutely do this, and we'd love to, to have you come out and join us. Okay. He Is is our brand new series. It's going to take us all the way into the Christmas season, and we're tremendously excited about this series. It's tracing the seven I am statements that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John. That's the seven statements. We're going to talk about the first one today, the I am the bread of life. But before we do that, I want to just talk generally about these statements and why they're so significant. If you're reading the Bible, especially John's Gospel, and you recognize that he's doing something seven times there's a good chance he's trying to draw your attention to something. And that's absolutely the case here. Every one of these statements not only tells us something specific about who Jesus is and what he's like, something unique that they contribute, but all of them, in their very form, in the way that they're put together verbally, they teach you something incredibly significant about who and even what Jesus is. And so those of you who've been um, in the church a long time, if you're familiar with the Bible, even in English, this phrase will probably remind you of something. When you hear someone say, I am, it might draw your mind back to the Old Testament. I'll talk about that in a second. In the New Testament, which is written in Greek, when you say I am, the way you say that is ego eimi. And you could just memorize that because we're going to be talking about it every week for the rest of the series. Ego eimi is the ancient Greek way to say I am. And it's a very normal phrase in Greek. Other people use it in the New Testament. It's just a simple way to say like, I'm here, or it's me, or something like that. It's, it's a normal form of address. It doesn't always have the ego. It's kind of like Spanish in that way. You know, in Spanish, you can say yo soy or soy. It's kind of like that. Sometimes they just jump straight to the verb and say a me. Sometimes they say ego a me, but it's a normal form of address. So the question you have to ask is, how do we know that John is doing something significant when he uses these words? when he puts them in Jesus' mouth. And your first clue we already talked about is the fact that he builds these seven statements throughout his work. John also famously has seven signs or seven miracles that he puts throughout his gospel. So that's your first clue. But there's something deeper going on here. Because even though this is a, a fairly ordinary phrase in Greek, if you were a Greek-speaking Jewish person, which the first readers and hearers of the Bible, as well as all of the authors of the New Testament were, if you are Jewish Greek speaking, Greek reading, this phrase is like a hyperlink. It's like a link on the internet that jumps you straight back to a couple of really significant moments in the Old Testament. This is the first one of those. If you were here for our Moses series, you'll remember this story. When Moses is called by God and sent back into Egypt to res rescue Israel from slavery, he speaks, God speaks to him from a burning bush. And he says, go back on my behalf, rescue my people from Pharaoh, rescue them from Egypt. 
And Moses says, how should I introduce you? This is what God says. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, they say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, your Bible will probably say the Lord in all capitals, but anytime you see that in the Old Testament, we talk about this here a lot, you see the Lord in all small capitals, that's translating the personal name Yahweh. Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Now in Hebrew, God's doing something really interesting with this. He first says to Moses, Eye Asher Eye, has the first person singular, I am. It's exactly like it looks in English. I am that I am. I am the one who is, has sent you. We could talk all day about what that means theologically, but we don't have time for that today. We'll talk about it more later in the series. Then he says it again, same thing. Eye has sent me to you, I am. But then when he instructs Moses about how Israel is supposed to refer to God, he switches to the third person singular. So instead of I am, he says, he is. So that third one, say this to the people of Israel, he is the God of your father. So the one who is. And so at first it's I am, Eye. And then when it switches for Israel's way of addressing God, it's he is, which was probably pronounced Yahweh. Now, that's in Hebrew, but do you want to guess what that first one is in Greek, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament? Ego, me has sent you. Now, what you need to realize is the vast majority of people who are reading the Old Testament in Jesus' day in the first century are reading it in Greek, most likely not Hebrew. There would have been Hebrew versions of the Old Testament in synagogues, and they would have heard those, but if you are reading it, you're reading it in Greek, most likely. And so you're used to this very first time, this incredibly significant passage where God gives his personal name to his people. He says, ego me has sent you. Now, that's already pretty dramatic, but there's some even stronger versions of this later in the prophets, particularly in Isaiah. There's four or five of these in Isaiah, but this is my favorite one. This is God in poetry speaking through the prophet Isaiah to Israel, and he actually uses poetry a very poetic form to communicate ideas. It's incredible. It says, Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, Yahweh, the first, and with the last, I am he. The way the Hebrew poetry works, kind of the, the primary device they use is parallelism. So you get kind of sets of two lines that go together. And usually how they work is the second line will modify or emphasize or in some way kind of like impact the meaning of the first line. So you see that really clearly in the first set of lines. The question is who has performed and done this? And then the second line says what the this is, calling the generations from the beginning. The second line almost like brackets out this really broad statement about God. It says, I, Yahweh, the first, and with the last, Anihu, I am. Now, you see how that's bracketing? I, Yahweh, first, and with the last, I am. So I am and Yahweh and these two ideas are, are completely parallel in those two lines. In Greek, what it says, it's incredible. Those two lines say, ego, theos, I, God, protos, first, I, God, first, and with the last, ego, me. So in the Greek Old Testament, 
What's directly parallel to the personal name of Israel's God, Yahweh, is the phrase, Egoemi, I am. And every time Isaiah uses that phrase, Anihu, I am he, he uses Egoemi. So when John puts this phrase in Jesus' mouth, and sometimes it's incredibly dramatic where there's not even a predicate. It's not even like I am and then something that he is. It, it, Jesus will sometimes just say, egoemi. We'll look at some examples of that later in the series, and we'll actually see one of them today. But for these seven, John is putting in the mouth of Jesus these words that carry the weight of the identity of Israel's God. So not only is he telling you with the bread of light, bread of life, light of the world, door of the sheep, all of these things, not only is he saying something about what Jesus is doing and what he's like, he's also saying who and what Jesus is. This is a claim of deity. This is Jesus saying, I am Israel's God. And then in what he says about himself and what he does, he's telling us, and this is what that God is like. So when you hear John record Jesus saying this, you are meant to hear and feel all of that weight of the Old Testament revelation of God and that Jesus is saying, that's me. Now look at what I'm like. Now listen to what I'm like. So we'll be unpacking all of these statements throughout the series. For today, we're looking at this one, and this is a, a really incredible story. It's, a, it's part of this like, gigantic discourse that Jesus gives that we can't even look at all of it. Um, but he says, I am, you go me, the bread of life. And on the surface, you hear that and go like, well, that's like a really nice, positive-sounding thing. Like, everybody likes bread. Jesus is saying he's comparing himself to bread. People probably loved this. But here's the truth. By the time Jesus has said this, and he says it twice, and then explained what it meant, the vast majority of people who are following him at that point will leave because he says this. Something about Jesus saying this and explaining what he means by it causes hundreds, if not thousands of people to leave and be reduced down to dozens. And so to understand what he's saying and why it was received that way, we got to jump back to the beginning. Now, he says this after a really famous bread-centric miracle. Any guesses? Feeding of the 5,000. Thank you. Yeah, I know there, I saw a couple of you like, you're about to say it, but you're like, I'm going to let Scott Jackson say it and make sure, make sure I'm right. Yeah, it's the feeding of the 5,000. Now, this is um, a miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. There aren't that many of those. Uh, and we call it the feeding of the 5,000, but the way that they describe the number is, is just based on the number of men that were there. That's kind of the ancient way of doing that. And so if there were 5,000 men, which is what the text actually says, there could have been easily upwards of 20,000 total people there. So the story goes like this. Jesus is teaching in Galilee, the region that he's from, and he's attracting giant crowds because of the miracles he's performing and the teachings that he's giving. And so he ends up kind of out in the middle of nowhere with this massive crowd of, again, 15, 20,000 or more people. And the disciples say, hey, it's getting late. We should send these guys home to eat. Jesus says, no, we're going to give them something to eat. And the, the disciples are like, you have any idea how expensive that's going to be? And, and there's not even a place to buy food here. And Jesus tells them, well, what do we got? And all they have is five pieces of bread and two fish. And you got to think, just the pure mathematics of that are insane. That's one one-thousandth of a piece of bread for every family that's present. But Jesus blesses the bread, and they start to pass it out. And as they pass it out, everyone just keeps eating and eating and having enough. In fact, John says everyone ate, this is exactly what he says, as much as they wanted. They just keep eating. It's not even like you go, well, there's a lot of us, and it's a tiny bit of bread, so just take enough to get full and then stop. Everyone can eat as much as they want. And John goes out of his way, just like all the other gospel writers do, to tell you it's, it's even more than that. Because Jesus then sends his disciples out to collect the leftovers, and they collect 12 baskets 
full of leftover bread. Again, when you read and you hear numbers and they tell you things like that, stop and pay attention. Because if you read through the New Testament, you'll find in the narratives, they don't give you those details very often. And if you see a detail like, well, there's 12 baskets, slow down and go, why would there be 12 baskets? What's that supposed to mean to me? And 12 is the number of Israel. It's the number of the tribes. It's also the number of the new people of God that Jesus is in the process of reconstituting at that moment with his 12 apostles. And so it's like the miracle is meant to show not only is there enough for all of these people who are here, but there's enough, there's an overabundance, more than enough to feed all of God's people. If you are a Jewish person in the first century and a teacher with miraculous powers is out in the wilderness and provides miraculously enough bread for the entire people who are there, you immediately think of one character from the Old Testament, Moses. You think of the Exodus. Because Moses led the people of God out into the wilderness, and then God provided through Moses this manna for them to eat every single day. And just so you know, I'm not making that up. This is what the people do after the miracle. When the people saw the sign that had been done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. That's a, a clear reference to Deuteronomy 18, where Moses says, there will be a, he's, Moses is about to die. People of Israel are about to enter the promised land. And Moses said, God will raise up a prophet like me from among you, and you shall listen to him. From that point on, there's this expectation that that prophet is going to come any day. And so when Jesus miraculously provides bread in the wilderness for his people, they say, this is the new Moses. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Other gospels tell us that he went up there to pray. He goes up to the mountain because he can tell they're about to, you know, put him on their shoulders and march to Jerusalem so that he can overthrow Rome. He says, no, that's not how I'm doing things. He goes up the mountain. He sends his disciples across the Sea of Galilee, and it's really weird. You've got to stop and, th and think again here. John just gave this powerful bread miracle, and Jesus is about to give a whole long speech and argument back and forth with the people about bread. Why in between those two things would John have a story about the apostles crossing the Sea of Galilee and Jesus walking on water to meet them? Now, the immediate answer could just be like, well, because that's what happened, and he's just saying what happened. But here's the thing. John doesn't tell you everything that happened. He actually goes out of his way to say that he's not telling you everything that happened. John, at the end of his gospel, says, Jesus did so many things and said so many things that if we were to write all of them down, there are not enough scrolls in the world to hold all of them. And then he says, but I picked these stories in order that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John says, I picked these stories to prove to you that Jesus is the Christ. So, there's a ton of stories that other gospels tell that John doesn't tell. John's hyper-focused on a specific goal. And so, why does he take a story about providing bread and a speech about bread and throw a story about Jesus walking on water in the middle of it? When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. Okay, I did this in first service. I'm going to do it again even though I shouldn't. It's just a rabbit trail, but it's super interesting to me, and it's, it's makes all of these stories so much richer. Again, when, when an author who's not giving you a ton of detail stops and tells you this is happening in the evening, and then one line later he says, it's dark while it's happening, especially if that author's John, stop and, and think about that. 
let it inform the way you picture the story, but also remember, they don't tell you what time of day stuff happens very often. And when they do, especially John, he's drawing your attention to something. When John says things happen at night, when John says things happen in the darkness, there is usually a component of, of spiritual misunderstanding. People are in the dark in the way that we would say it in the modern world, either spiritually or cognitively or something. They're not getting something. And so that's what, how John is setting up what's coming next. It's why when Jesus rises from the dead, spoiler alert, at the end of John, he says, it happened, that was a joke. I think you all know how the story ends. He says it happens in the morning on the first day of the week. He tells you that twice. He's trying to tell you new creation is starting. It's, it's a new first day of creation. Anyway, sorry for wasting time on that. It was dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. So the disciples are heading across the Sea of Galilee in a boat. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, guess what? I am, not it is I. He said to them, ego e me. And this is one of those ones that doesn't say I am and then some explanation of what he means by that. I am, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. That's one detail. The other thing that's, that's really subtle but incredible is that when it says Jesus is walking on the sea, that is verbatim taken from the Greek translation of the book of Job, where Job's talking about God says, he treads upon the waters, but I can't find him. That's what Job says. And here Jesus treads upon the waters, the exact same language, and shows up and says, I am. What is John doing? The people of Israel saw Jesus as the new Moses, but they don't understand. This story is amazing because the people of Israel keep getting it, but totally not getting it at the same time. So they see Jesus as the new Moses, but they don't get that he's a lot more than the new Moses. And so they say, hey, you gave us man in the wilderness, you're Moses, let's make you king. Jesus does not want to be king the way that they want, and so he withdraws. And then as his disciples are faced with raging, dangerous seas, I am, the God of Israel, comes out and delivers them safely across it. It's the Red Sea crossing happening in the New Testament. John is setting you up to see Jesus not only as the embodiment of the new Moses, but as the God who delivered the people of Israel. He, he, bring, he provides manna in the desert, in the wilderness, and then he safely delivers them across chaotic water. And he throws in that little ego a me just to, to tip you to that. But there's, it becomes even more clear as we continue going. So the people find out that Jesus got across, but they have no idea how he got there. So they kind of rush around the lake. You got to picture this giant crowd coming around again. And they get to him and they say, how did you get here? But Jesus does not answer that question. He goes straight to the heart of the matter. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. This is like, again, classic Israelites getting it and not getting it. So they come and they, they go, hey, how'd you get here? And Jesus goes, you're not following me because you're interested in me. You can't see past the sign that you saw. You want my stuff, you don't want me. You want the bread I can give you, you don't want me. And just as a side note, understand that there are countless 
preachers and teachers of the Bible in the world today who will tell you that that's exactly how you're supposed to relate to God. That you're supposed to be concerned primarily with what God can give to you. Some of them do that explicitly. Some of, it do, some of them do it really subtly. But man, I just can't say it enough. Flee from that kind of teaching as fast as you can. Because Jesus here confronts that in, in these people. And you'll find the New Testament doing that a lot, by the way. And Jesus says, you're only after the bread that I can give you. You miss the fact that the sign is supposed to point to the bread giver, not the bread. And so he tells them, don't work for food that like you'll eat it and get hungry again. Instead, work for food that leads to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. And somehow the people who are listening completely miss the part where he says the Son of Man will give it to you. Instead of focusing on the bread of eternal life, they focus on the work. So they say, okay, what do we have to do? What, what, like, we can get that. We can, we can handle it. What, what should we do to get that kind of bread? And at this point, it's just, again, the Bible doesn't say that Jesus did this, but it's hard not to imagine Jesus just being like, okay. <laughs> I just said I would give it to you. And then he says, here's the work. Believe in the one that God sent. That word is incredibly significant to John. Again, he ends his book by saying, I, put, I picked these stories and arranged them so that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Here Jesus says it again. What's the work you do to get the bread? Believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we might see and believe? Think about the fact that Jesus just the day before fed 20,000 people with five pieces of bread. And imagine the type of perspective that causes you to go, okay, you're the son of man, show us something. Do a miracle. And Jesus doesn't say like, hey, do you forget already what I did yesterday? I did a, like a super miracle. This one's so awesome, it's going to get in all four of my books. <laughs> they say, what work do you perform? So they're seeing what Jesus is saying. Follow that thread, that Exodus thread, as a claim to be the new Moses. And so they say, okay, what work did you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Moses gave our fathers miraculous bread too. What else you got? And Jesus corrects what they said in two ways. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God isn't what? The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He says, first of all, Moses didn't give you guys bread. He didn't give your father's bread. God gave your father's bread. And secondly, that bread was just a, a shadow, just a foretaste of the true bread of God that's going to come down. And that bread's not a what, but a he. And just when you think Jesus can't have been any clearer, the people say, awesome, we'll take some of that bread then. <laughs> like that's what, sir, give us this bread always. And again, doesn't say this, but I just picture Jesus being like, oh my gosh, okay. How can I be clearer than this? Jesus says, wasn't Moses, it was God. And that wasn't the real bread. The real bread is a he. So they say, give us that bread. And Jesus goes all the way as clear as he can possibly be. Jesus said to them, I am, ego me, the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. 
For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This paragraph is so dense and rich that we could have an entire series unpacking it. But look at what he's saying. He says, okay, you guys want the bread? Here, I'll give it to you straight. I'm the bread. The bread's not something I'm going to just give you. The bread's not something that I'm bringing to you. The bread is what I am. And so he says this phrase that identifies him with the God of Israel, egoimi, and then says, I am that bread. And then he outlines just this, this beautiful paradox that when we get obsessed with, we, we end up arguing about it theolo- theologically. That's kind of the main thing we do. But, but the paradox is so beautiful when you see how Jesus lays it out. He says, anyone who comes to me, how do you eat the bread? You believe in me. And anyone who comes to me, I'm not going to throw him out. But here's the thing. The ones who come to me are the ones that the Father gives to me. And so a couple things from that. The first one is, because I hear this all the time, if you are concerned and fearful that you might not be one of the people that God chose, that maybe you're trying this Christianity thing and the reason it's so hard is because God doesn't want you, God didn't pick you, put that to rest forever, okay? Because Jesus says, if you come to me, I will not, and the Greek word should be, it'd be better translated, throw you away. If you come, anyone who comes to me doesn't get thrown away. If you come to Jesus, he holds on to you till the end. But then again, paradoxically, those who come to Jesus will find that there has been an invisible force, like a hand on your back, pushing you towards Jesus. And by the way, people from both spectrums of the debate about free will and God's sovereignty agree, you need God to allow you to do this in some way. And so rather than focus on kind of the differences between these perspectives and the debate between them, that's, that's worthwhile and it's worth discussing. But at this point, I just want you to see the beauty of this, that Jesus says, what do you, how do you eat the bread? You believe in me. Come to me. If you look on the Son and believe in him, you'll have eternal life. But who does that? The one that the Father gives. Later on in this passage, in a section we won't look at, he talks about how it's, it's like a drawing, it's like a wooing that the Father does with love. says, if you come to the Son, you don't get thrown away, you don't get lost, you have eternal life, and you'll be resurrected on the last day. So Jesus says, I am bread. And like, at first that sounds like, oh cool, that's like a really sweet, beautiful metaphor. I love bread. But, but honestly, you got to realize, we talk about this at the church a lot, so I'm not going to belabor the point too much, but we can't relate to the ancient world's understanding of what it means to say, I am bread, and if you eat this bread, you'll never be hungry again. There are people in the room who have feared for hunger, who have feared about where their next meal is going to come from, but most of us do not. I've never been afraid of whether I would eat again. I probably never will be. And the incredible luxury and the unusualness, historically, of of an entire society of people who is never worried about whether they're going to eat their next meal or not, that's very unusual historically, and it makes it hard to relate to this image of bread. Because bread to the ancient person is that thing that you, all, that you need, without which you will die. And I'm always hoping and, and praying that I'll get it tomorrow and the next day and the next week, but I'm never sure. And so the reassuring nature of being told, no, I've, I've got you. I've got the thing that you need, the thing that if you don't have it, you're going to die. I've got it for you. Don't worry. We have a really hard time connecting to that. So I want you to ask yourself, what is something in your life 
without which you feel like you'll die? What's something that you need every single day, and if you don't have it, man, things start to unravel and fall apart? I asked my wife, what is like the, bread, the daily bread of the young mom? And without missing a beat, she said, Target. So I can't quite... <laughs> now, she was totally joking, I think. But, but I would suggest that for many of us, if not all of us, there's something you carry around in your pocket every day that represents more than itself. This is a supercomputer that you carry in your pocket or your wallet. And we still, for some hilarious and adorable reason, call this a phone even though I can't remember the last time I called someone with it. And it represents so much more than itself. This thing is your connection to the world. It's your connection to the sum total of human knowledge for all of human history, almost. And man, if you leave for work and you get halfway to work and you realize you left your actual daily bread, like you left your lunch at home, you'll just be like, oh, no worries, I'll just get something. But if you realize you left this at home, you're going to be late for work today, right? You're not going to make that 9 a.m. meeting. And for good reason, to a certain extent. I mean, like, the, the amount of things that this does for you is, is absolutely unprecedented. Nobody in human history has had something like this. I mean, it, it does everything for you. You get lost, take out your phone. You're fine. You need to talk to somebody, take out your phone. Text them. Don't call them. That's just a, that's just a piece of advice. <laughs> just kidding. That's only if you're trying to contact me. You need like a good restaurant to go to? Take out your phone. You, like you get a flat tire? Your phone. You've, you have everything right here. There's a pastor from Kenya who I met who, who called the cell phone the American tiny god. And with a, with a lowercase g. He goes, you all have your tiny gods all the time. And it's true. I mean, this thing's not just daily bread. This is like the thing that provides you with your daily bread. I got this point like driven home with ridiculous clarity uh, about five years ago when my wife and I got lost in Tanzania. Tanzania is in East Africa. Um, to make a long story short, we got dropped off somewhere where we thought people would be and nobody was there, but the car drove away and we like walked to where all the people were supposed to be and we we're like, oh, they're not here. Let's go. Oh, the car's gone. <laughs> and then you're in the middle of nowhere in East Africa, no idea how to get anywhere. And I didn't even have my little Tanzania phone with me, which is a total rookie move. I've never made that mistake ever again. And this phone at the time couldn't connect to the Tanzanian service. It's a lot easier now, but back then, no way to connect. And so we realized like, man, the day that it's the schedule of the day is so hectic. I don't know when people will even realize we're missing. Maybe at dinner, maybe not. They might not notice till tomorrow that they have no idea where we are. And so because I'm, I'm a faithful Christian, I got on my knees and I prayed earnestly for half an, no, I didn't pray. <laughs> I took out my phone, for real. This is a story that actually makes me ashamed, for real, to this day. I tried to make my phone work for like 20 or 30 minutes without praying. And I knew it wasn't working because I kept trying the same thing over and over. You know how you do that? You go like, well, that didn't work. Maybe if I do the same exact thing again, it'll... I was trying everything to... I'm like, is there Wi-Fi here in the middle of nowhere, East Africa? Like, I tried everything. I'm not exaggerating. 20, 30 minutes of trying to get the phone to work, watching the battery go down. Think about the insanity. Think about what's revealed about what I actually believe in that. I believe that God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, loves me and listens to me when I talk. 
but I tried to make my tiny God save me for 20 minutes before I even asked him for help. And it was my wife who realized, like, maybe we should pray. And I told her, there's no time to pray. I have to figure this out. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, she, she suggested that we pray, and I really, it, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I was like, here I am, like, on the mission field as a pastor, and I, like, beseeched my tiny God instead of the almighty God. And I don't tell stories like this if they're not true, so believe me when I say, we prayed, and five minutes later, a car showed up. And they said five minutes ago, they were on the phone with somebody else in the organization, and through just someone accidentally saying where they thought we were, they realized we were in the wrong place and came back to get us. Like, like at the moment, we were praying. And it was just one of those things where I'm like, like I, I would pass a lie detector test that I believe God could do that. But I didn't ask him to sustain me. I asked this tiny God instead. And so I want to encourage you guys, this is a side note before we, before we finish this, that um, <laughs> we have got to do everything we can to cut those ties. I've been slowly but surely trying to do this, and it's you know, kind of a two-step forward, one-step back thing. I'm deleting apps regularly to try to get me, myself to, to look at it less, to trust in it less. Um, but man, that, this, this little device and everything it represents has its hooks in us big time. We don't know how much it's changed our, our way of interacting with the world already, but it's massive. Some of you guys can remember, like it's, it's in my lifetime that if you got a flat tire, you had to like knock on a stranger's door or find a call box or something. It's unheard of now. And so Jesus says, ego a me, I am the bread of life. And you gotta ask, do you know how hungry you are spiritually? It's really hard for the materially full to realize how spiritually hungry they are. The Bible says that a lot. The way Jesus says it is, blessed are the poor in spirit. Because they know what it means to ask for help. But man, when you are full physically, it's hard to realize how hungry you are spiritually. So when you find yourself time after time looking for sustenance and provision from this and all that it represents. Ask yourself, what do I have to change in my life to recognize that the bread of life is available to me? That God himself poured himself out so much that there is no lack, that there's 12 baskets overflowing with spiritual food, that if you can come to him and believe in him, because that's how he said to eat it, that if you can come to him and believe in him, you won't be hungry ever again. And just ask yourself, am I, am I so full of spiritual cotton candy that I don't know that I need bread? So Jesus goes on. They go back and forth a few more times and kind of continue to drill down into the same idea. Jesus ends up actually saying in a really direct way, um, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now, he's already said what he means, coming to him and believing in him, but the people grumble when he says that. And as if the Exodus connection wasn't strong enough already, it's the exact same word for when the Israelites grumble when they're hungry, when they don't have water in the wilderness. They grumble and they start to leave. Probably thousands. It doesn't say, but it's reduced down to the dozens, the dozen, we don't know exactly, but his close disciples. And Jesus says, you guys want to go too? And Peter says, where would we go? You have the words of life. And so again, ask yourself. These are still the responses to Jesus, by the way. Now, 
why did they leave? I mean, there's a, there's a few options. It could be that they took what he said in a really concrete way and thought that he was like advocating cannibalism. That's unlikely, I think. Um, but what I think is very likely is that that is a horrifically offensive metaphor to a religious Jew. To say, you, you, wanna, you have to eat flesh and drink blood. And, and something about it, something about that kind of, that image being applied to the fact that they have to rely on this person causes them to leave. Now, we might not be offended by that image, but man, we are equally offended by the idea that we have to rely on this one person as the source of our bread. So Jesus says, I am the bread of life a second time. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. I'm the manna. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And at this point, I just like, I wish I could think of a good transition to communion from this passage, but it's just not there. That's a joke, you guys. So it's bread of life. <laughs> the ushers are going to pass out communion. Um, and we say this every week, but if this is something that Christians do to remember and connect with the death of Jesus on our behalf. So if, if that's not you today, feel free to let it go by. But if, man, if you're thinking, I, I am spiritually starving, I need that bread that leads to eternal life, I need to be brought into that relationship with Jesus, what better first act of acknowledging that than taking this? Everyone is invited to. Um, but if you're not sure, you are more than, don't feel weird about letting it pass you by. Jesus says here towards the end, What's the bread? My flesh. How do people get access to that bread of life that the Father sends down from heaven? It has to be broken. How do you eat something that gives you eternal life, that guarantees that you will be brought into fellowship with God, that makes it so that you as God's enemy become God's son or God's daughter? What is it that can take away the alienation caused by your disobedience? by your mistreatment of other image bearers, by your mistreatment and rebellion against God. What can do that? In the miracle of the cross, what does that is the sacrificial death of the Son of God on your behalf. That bread gets broken and it's then distributed. And as a consequence of the fact that Jesus has given his life, has allowed his flesh to be broken on our behalf, and because that he was raised up from the dead on the third day, those who come to him and believe in him can have eternal life. I mean, it's that direct. And so I want to invite you today to consider, as we do every week, the cost of that salvation, the fact that his, his sinless, undeserving body was broken on your behalf, his blood was poured out on your behalf, that you might be brought into fellowship with God and recognize that this is your source of eternal sustenance. No matter how much you pull the tiny God out of your pocket, that thing cannot save you, period. It can't. Not any more than it could save me in Tanzania. And so we look to the true bread of life for daily sustenance and, and recognize the spiritual hunger that we are all completely, helplessly stricken by. I invite you to stand with me. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
And he took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for the remission of sins. So that people like you and me who are imperfect, who are constantly looking to other things for sustenance, to be fed, so that people like that could be washed clean and brought into fellowship with God. And so I want to invite you this week, today, during the song that we're about to sing, to consider, number one, what do I look to to sustain me? And number two, how can I change it so that I look to Jesus? How can I take this idea that Jesus is the bread of life and actually make it part of my daily life? How can I connect to the fact that I need him more than all of this stuff that I'm working so hard for? For everybody in the room, that might be something different, to bring yourself in touch with your dependence on God for sustenance. But I could suggest one thing that I think every single person in the room could do, and that's to, at least once a day, pray the prayer that Jesus gave us. Because in this prayer, along with a bunch of other incredible things, is a reminder that God is the source of our daily bread. And that might just help you connect to the fact that, man, I actually, you know what? I haven't worried about daily bread in a long time. And maybe one day that's a, that's a feeling of gratitude. Thank you, Lord, for the incredible and unusual benefit of living in a time and place when I'm not worried about that. Another day it might convict you to realize just because I have material bread doesn't mean that I'm, I'm spiritually not hungry, not desperate. And so we're, I'm going to pray this prayer over all of us, and then I, I invite you to, to worship and praise the God of heaven and earth who has made eternal food available to you. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen.